Welcome to the Vulgar Tours, where uh, we discuss the filmographies of genre filmmakers. We are getting close to the end of our filmography of our miniseries on the filmography of Antoine Fuqua. Today, we are discussing 2015's boxing film Southpaw. I'm Paco, and I'm Jason. And, and this one was a ray of sunshine uh, at the end of my day yesterday. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, uh, I told you separately that like I hadn't seen any trailers for this, didn't know at all what this was about. Just from the cover, it made me think of, was it Fighter with uh, Christian Bale? and uh, Yeah, The Fighter. Uh, yeah, yeah, The Fighter. And then there was also like The Wrestler. There's all these like random boxing, you know, movies, wrestling movies, like athletic movies of, okay, I'm guessing that, you know, Hall is going to be, you know, at the top of his game and then he's going to lose. And then the whole movie is going to be the Rocky thing of his comeback and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it kind of dances around that before it turns into this bleak, sad, like I cried four times. I was expecting like this lighthearted, like, oh, this is, you know, whatever. It's like million dollar baby, but focusing on the last fucking 15 minutes of that movie as the entirety of this movie. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. Uh, oh, really? The uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Hillary Swank? Yeah, I heard she lost to a chair. And, oh, um, <laughs> well, you're not I, wrong. I just but... know that from the Always Sunny. And I was like, well, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> if you can get beat by an inanimate object, I don't really want to watch it. Yeah. Um, you should watch it, though. It's pretty, it's one of the better of the Clint Eastwood ones. But now I just like, Clint Eastwood drives me crazy. Like you just recently saw the uh, that train one, fifteen seventeen to Paris. Oh man, uh, I do have to say Richard Jewell is really good. I, I really haven't like seen that it. one. Um, it is like a pretty good indictment of why you shouldn't trust the government or the media, uh, which it's like. Wasn't he like a like a security guard? He was a security guard who found the bag that had the bomb for the Atlanta bombing. And mm-hmm. due to his help, they were able to like kind of get a bomb squad in place and evacuate things before it went off. And like I think a couple people still died, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh Paul Walter Hauser is incredible in it have you seen um i Tanya? no i haven't seen that yet oh man uh he's basically in those he's got a small role in like five bloods but he doesn't have many big roles because he's a bigger guy and there's just not a lot of roles for big guys but he's an incredible mm-hmm. actor and he brings a lot of depth to this character that's this weird mix of like earnest and just dumb as a bag of bricks <laughs> and like uh it's it's a really interesting even if you don't agree with eastwood's politics i think it's a really good examination of like a major subculture of the american psyche mm-hmm. like weirdo fail sons who still obsessively love cops and wish they were cops <laughs> even when cops ruin their lives yeah. uh it's it's fascinating and i mean like most of eastwood's movies in this later era it's fairly slight mm-hmm. but 
I mean, Paul Walter Hauser, Kathy Bates, and Sam Rockwell are all giving next level performances. Uh, mm. It is a lot better than I expected it to be. But fifteen seventeen to Paris is bizarre. No, it's, it's super weird. Like it's off putting. I I don't know. I bless their hearts, but I watched it with a bunch of people who really enjoyed it. And I totally respect that. I just, I was so distracted by the blending of reality and fiction. And I was just feeling trauma for these people who, I don't know. It's just, dude, not only does he have the three heroes play themselves and like 70 minutes of the movie is just their lives where it's all about the banality of like normal life, which is, boring as shit but then in the train attack sequence he had the guy who got shot by the terrorist replay himself as a guy who got shot by terrorists (laughs) (laughs) it's like the long game of clint eastwood to really traumatize someone fuck dude uh yeah it's yeah it's fascinating um junk filter uh, this new podcast uh, that the critic Jesse Hawken does uh, did an episode about it last week or two weeks ago, which inspired me to to watch it. But uh, I gotta say, I really respect what he's doing, but hard disagree on that one. Uh, yeah, I mean the the experimentality of it is really interesting, and I mean Clint Eastwood has done some really interesting daring choices or he's made some really interesting choices and that on paper is interesting but the execution is just a mess well and he's like the last director who should do that because he's famous for doing one take of anything yeah anytime he works with even just actors who it's not their process like in uh gran torino a lot of the actors uh were less experienced And just only having the one take fucks up actors who aren't necessarily used to that, you know, and a lot of actors don't get their best stuff till several takes in. And it it really doesn't do his leads any good that he doesn't take the time to really hold their hand and get the performance they need because these people are like soldiers. They're not actors. They need a bit of extra sculpting to get to a mm-hmm. point. Plus the script is uh, okay. Uh, this yeah. is turning into a 15 to 17 podcast, but fucking for some reason there's when they're in middle school, all of the characters are played like all the adults, all the administrators in the school are played by comedians. Uh, even the moms are Jenna yeah, Fisher from the office yeah. at uh, what's her face? Uh, the Judy Greer um, oh. from like Arrested Development and Archer and stuff. But fucking Urkel is in this movie. You've got Tony Hale, Buster from oh, Arrested Development. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, Urkel. Yeah. Michael J. White, right? Michael, no? Uh, maybe. I... Michael J. Fox was the original Urkel, I think. That checks out. Um, he's always asking if he did that. Um, yeah, totally. He was dubbing. He was dubbed, I think, in the North State or wait, in the South States, and then was that checks out. Yeah. Uh, but it's just so fucking weird because Eastwood doesn't normally cast comedians, but he has all these comedians come in, give like 
one day roles where they play things completely straight. There's no jokes. Yeah. It is like watching a movie from another planet. Yeah, he's <laughs> lost his mind. It's really it's, like it, it, he's surrounded by people who are letting him do these vanity projects when maybe he shouldn't be making a movie every year, you know, like Woody Allen type shit, which granted Woody Allen's different type of problem, but mm-hmm. it's just like, uh, like he would make like a handful of great movies, especially in the nineties, early two thousands. He made some interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pieces, but now I just feel like they're kind of motivated and like specific and not really interesting, like, artistically. I think that's true in some of them, uh, in some cases. Again, I feel like you should check out Richard Jewell. It's the only one one of the 2010s that I've seen that I've been blown away by. And it's, Hmm. it's really interesting. I had a talk after watching it with someone who was, like, worried about the political nature of it. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like, given the history, no one should be on the side of the FBI. Like, yeah. they've done a lot to fuck up people all across the political spectrum. And um, it's it's interesting because most of the time we think of the right as being sort of unabashedly pro-law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more nuance there. Um, the... Uh, subplot with olivia wilde who's like a reporter who sleeps around for scoops got them into some trouble Hmm. but i don't know it's it's a movie they take fucking license like it it's the worst part of the movie but it didn't bother me as much as like i expected it would like it's just i don't know it's it's a complicated movie uh but i like that that movie and Dark Waters are two movies from last year that I didn't really enjoy walking out of the theater, but I keep returning to and thinking of. Like, I haven't rewatched them. Yeah. But they're two of the movies of last year that stuck with me. Like, I rarely think of Parasite, which is hmm. argue like, no question, a oh, better yeah. movie than either of those. But yeah. there's something about Dark Waters and Richard Jewell that really stuck in my craw. Yeah. yeah, like they kind of just sit with you for a little bit and marinate and stuff. Like Dark Waters was the fracking one with Mark Ruffalo, or was it fracking? It's, it's not fracking, it's Teflon. And oh. uh, so I think about it because I've got a pot where the Teflon is flaking off. And every hey, time I use it, I'm like, oh, I'm getting more cancer now. Because uh, yeah. it's all about the uh, microcarbons and this lawyer who spent decades trying to get DuPont to pay for basically poisoning the entire world. Yeah. Uh, Good it's, luck. It's a fucking bummer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that in like the category of like, I know you're a big fan of Michael Clayton. Is Dark Waters kind of in that boat of like an interesting adult drama? You know what I mean? Kind of. It's surprisingly conventional given mm-hmm. it's from the guy whose first movie was a story about the Carpenters told entirely with Barbie dolls. Uh, like the, the band, the Carpenters? Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, Todd Haynes is fucking very unique voice. Uh, but this just felt like conventional 90s legal drama. Um, I had no idea that he directed that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's uh, it has some Haynesian touches, but it's 
Since some ma- masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any of that, but I might have just forgotten it. Anyways, I guess we should probably talk about Southpaw. Well, uh, you know, masturbation's a great segue into Southpaw. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta do it, Southpaw. Oh, totally. You know, to feel alive. I mean, shit, 2020, COVID. Sometimes you just gotta switch hands. Yeah. Do some uppercuts. The stranger's not enough some days. <laughs> Stranger from within. Yeah. Uh, so... I saw this movie in the theater back in 2015, and I went in kind of like you did, expecting a pretty conventional movie. And then it turns out it's not really a boxing movie. It's like a melodrama about a dad dealing with substance abuse Mm -hmm. and like his emotional issues. And yeah, it fucking, I said on the, uh, Olympus has fallen episode that uh, Fuqua basically brings like a melodrama element mm-hmm. to his films. But in this case, he's like literally making a melodrama and he like amps all of that up to 11 where like it is, it's kind of on wheels. Like, you know exactly how the movie's trying to make you feel the whole time, but it, mm-hmm. it still packs a punch. Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, like I, I was really fascinated by again, like go, I went into this uh, without knowing anything about this movie, and so by the time that the first twenty minutes occur, I'm like, okay, is this going to be like a revenge movie where now he's just straight up going to track down Miguel and do some mm-hmm. killing and shit? And then it turned into like this really sensitive story of a father kind of surrendering to all of these things that um made him who he is to really get into the grit of starting at rock bottom and trying to gain you know uh, your own self-confidence uh without the means and and uh money necessary to ultimately hopefully you know be a good father and stuff mm-hmm. too it's just I, I feel like um this is probably fuqua's most emotional film like it, it everything came from a really um emotive place like his collaboration with jake gyllenhaal is is fantastic and i think they're working on or maybe they already have it in the bag but uh their next movie or fuqua's next movie and yeah that comes out next year yeah so i mean i was really interested with like a lot of the nuance of jake gyllenhaal because i mean for the most part he really stands out in any movie like he always brings this kind of oomph to something um, mm. that it may not have had. And so um, I was just thinking about how, like, I feel like every actor has to have a boxing movie. Like, it's kind of like their, you know, way of doing the movie star thing of, like, you know, you do a Western, mm-hmm. you do a horror, you do blah, blah. But um, I felt like I was trying to get my head around, like, okay, Jake Gyllenhaal chose this movie for a reason and it wasn't just to get ripped and all, all this stuff. And at the end of the day, it's just such a emotional, um, heartbreaking movie that's that's well crafted to kind of make you uh, assume certain things and then kind of serve you a little bit only to, you know, there's a lot of movement. And, and I, I don't know if there's a lot of nuance, like he plays a guy who's basically half punched around Carl Levitt already most of this mm-hmm. movie, um, but he brings 
such an inner depth to the character that I think is is really fascinating. Like in a weird way, like this is just a few months after Nightcrawler this come out this mm-hmm. came out, and uh, he's got that same kind of intense energy in this role, uh, just put to different ends. And mm-hmm. you know, in this case, it's mostly a man driven mad by grief uh but i mean should we should we summarize i guess the movie if uh you know folks haven't seen it it's yeah um basically a it starts right in the middle of uh you know jake gyllenhaal is playing this guy who's a famous um boxer who's like 40 and what 43 and zero he's undefeated mm-hmm. totally at the top of his game and physicality he's just total monster and uh you know he wins this match and you kind of um see that he has everything uh you know he has this caring wife uh, who's played by rachel mcadams so one of the interesting things i think if that's kind of a metaphor throughout the film is in this match uh we see like he's not necessarily a great fighter mm-hmm. he doesn't really have much of a defense and it's only once he really is getting beat up that he starts hitting back like it seems almost like he has to get mad and has to get revved up and it ends up i feel like being kind of the central metaphor of the film where he has to get dragged down to his lowest point before he has the willpower to do what he needs to do and Mm -hmm. that's what they call screenwriting (laughs) (laughs) well i think it was also just uh yeah that's a really good point I, I feel like it's also just this drive that his character has uh you know his wife is eventually killed in this random argument between him and miguel who's this uh he's not even a rival boxer he's just kind of this guy who's a no, boxer, he is like the a rival boxer yeah but it wasn't like it was you know, he showed up to the match just to kind of razz, uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's character. And then he showed, you know, he's like stalking him and kind of just razzing him up a bit. And then some some shit goes down and Rachel McAdams is shot and, and killed. Um, and I feel like the movie also is a story about dealing with the guilt of like his wife's last request was like, don't just let's go home. And it's mm-hmm. like there's one part of your life where you could have just gone home and had a totally, you know, okay well, time. But instead you you were uncontrollable. No one can control your anger. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, all of this had to happen so that you could address that, work on yourself to, hold, you know, have that momentum to take care of your daughter. Because it's also just this egotistical, you know, his backstory of being an orphan and coming from nothing and really he's the main character in his own story in his head. Like he is the fighter. He's the, you know, father, he's the provider. And there's so many characters like the caseworker who's mm-hmm. just trying to, you know, bounce it back to him by like, uh, you know, this is about her, your daughter, you know, this is, you know, so it was about humbling him to the lowest point to show him, you know, what his priority should be. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so Rachel McAdams gets owned, and then that was sad as shit. By the way, that was that was I think number one time I cried in the movie. It's such a dramatic 
scene and like yeah stretches it out like it is agonizing it yeah i don't know if it's actually five minutes but it feels like five minutes long where jake gyllenhaal's talking to her as like her life's slipping away and it it is generally like genuinely shocking it's Mm -hmm. the only thing i remembered about this movie five years later five and a half years on um was like, oh man, that was a fucking gut Because <laughs> um, it's like, what, 25 minutes in? And Rachel yeah. McAdams and Gyllenhaal have this great chemistry. And yeah. before she dies, she's like talked him out of fighting more. And they're just going to try to lead like a happy, quieter life. And, and she's protecting him. It's not yeah. a money thing. It's literally like, I'm worried about your health and those people are going to scamper when, you know, they can't use you anymore. And she's mm-hmm. his protector. And the idea that you can fall in love with her in the, however, the amount of screen time that she's in so that it really is a gut punch because you know, the relationships with him and her and their daughter, like are so paramount. So it's like, mm-hmm. that's what makes that loss even harder because you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. It's uh I was kind of thinking we'd be doing like two revenge movies <laughs> two weeks in a row between this and the equalizer. Yeah. It like actually is the most earnest and one of the most challenging looks at grief. We've I mean, mm. definitely we've done for anything in this podcast. I guess yeah. the only other thing that might come close is death sentence, which is mm-hmm. total other direction. Um well, there's also dead silence, you know, um, the, the lead character's wife dies early in the movie that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that carries this thorough line between, you know, the whole the entirety of that beautiful, well put together movie. That checks out. And I guess also, Transformers, Bad Boys, Transformers Bad Boys was too. pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. Bad Boys had some sad parts in it. No. Dude, but, so I watched, I, get you. I watched Small Soldiers the other day and Fuck the yeah. dad from fucking Transformers is the dad in Small Soldiers. Oh, Kevin, uh, whatever. Uh, I was like, that's where I know that fucking guy from. Yeah. Because I watched Small Soldiers religiously when I was like eight. Um, like Kirsten Dunst is in that movie, right? And, yeah. Uh, and she's like a teenager, right? Like She's, she's like, she's like young. This is pre-Virgin Suicides. I think it was yeah. 97 or 98. Um, but pre-Virgin Suicides, pre-Spider-Man, all that. Um, it... Man, I... It's an interesting failure. Like, basically, I think Zach Galligan from Gremlins sucks. Like, that's the guy's name, right? I don't think he's a very charismatic actor. And I think that weighs down that franchise. Uh, But Zach Galligan could fucking act whoever's in Small Soldiers out of the park. This kid... (laughs) is like watching paint dry if paint was annoying. Oh, um, yeah. And like it stank. It's fucking atrocious. Mm-hmm. And it really tears down a movie that has like David Cross and Dennis Leary and Phil Hartman, mm-hmm. like all these comedians that I didn't know when I saw it as a kid because I was a fucking child. But, uh, <laughs> and it's got like, interesting statements on the military industrial complex yeah and the like consolidation of capitalism and how it hurts everyday people 
which I mean, like Gremlins too. I think is Dante's best oh, political movie. Totally. Um, but this has shades of that. That's just so poorly executed. And that's so that's so weird. You watch that because like I I've been in a big Dante mood. Like I just watched Piranha last night and fuck yeah, fuck that movie is awesome. It's I was actually embarrassed because I realized I have never seen the original Piranha. I saw one of the shitty I think Showtime original movie remake of Piranha in the nineties, which is just like the original is really fun and campy and a total like write off to Jaws and that whole culture like. I haven't way. seen that one since high school. I remember thinking it was kind of boring. Uh, it, it, it has a lot of boring moments, but they're in, there's a lot of seventies disco y moments that are kind of, I mean, it's like, I think 78 or 79 when it came out. Something it's, like that. It's uh it's goofy, but it's, it has that Roger Corman style. That's really uh campy and fun too. Like it's actually pretty enjoyable, but not at all like Dante's other stuff, at least not that I can, kind of defend interesting i mean uh, give that a rewatch i love like straight up love piranha 3 i think it is one of the best movies of the 2010s uh and the the 3d dick part yeah it's just it's so fucking absurd it's it's the dumbest movie of the decade (laughs) but also so much fun it triggers you know it's dumb it's nope. the Beavis and Butthead triggering thing. Like mm-hmm. I just did my Beavis and Butthead laugh the whole way through. Like <laughs> it's so fucking. Anyways, uh, we should probably talk about Southpaw because that's what this episode's about. Uh, yeah, it's a fucking drama, and it is a downer. And Jake Gyllenhaal loses his kid because after he goes to try to kill the guy and he's not home but his crackhead wife like tries to fuck him for crack or was it heroin i don't remember i think it was was, yeah because she's saying she needs a hit i assume more like crack with that i think she was addicted it was a gambling addiction she was addicted to poker blackjack yeah 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 uh um, yeah, which was so she, again another tough part in the movie that's just like cool now i'm like super bummed out in this two minute scene to show you know so i read something before watching the movie that distracted me throughout uh where was this movie filmed do you like do you know if you don't know let me know where you think it was filmed um the dmz i don't know I don't know. That's weird. L.A. There was like a huge mansion estate, uh, but it, I guess one part of the movie takes place in New York and the other takes place in Vegas. So I don't know. Like, yeah, no most of the movies in set in New York, but they cheated Pittsburgh for New York, huh. which is weird to me. Like I and after Shooter, no less. Yeah, <laughs> huh. but it's just like why not just set it in Pittsburgh? I mean, what? there's nothing New York-centric about the story. Um, it doesn't, like, knowing that it's Pittsburgh, looking at everything, I was like, yeah, that doesn't look like New York at all. Um, is To a point where it became distracting. Um, yeah, that's weird. I, I didn't even think about that. But Pittsburgh is, like, a great film city that we should respect and give more props to 
Yeah. I mean, fucking George Romero. Uh, oh, totally. And Mr. Rogers, the, uh, mm-hmm. the two forefathers of cinema. Um, both are from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Anyways. Steelers. Yeah. Uh, man. It's fucking crazy. I was in Pittsburgh on a day where the Steelers were playing. I've never seen anything like it. Like, if the Blazers are playing here in Portland and you walk around, like, you might see a couple extra jerseys or something. Literally everyone in every part of the city had Pittsburgh Steelers shit. I mean, what else are you going to do in Pittsburgh? Well, I feel like they're like all those NFL cities are totally jived about their sports. Like I was in Seattle randomly when the Seahawks were playing and every bar on the strip was filled to the brim with like people all dolled up and like dressed in Mm -hmm. Seahawks shit. Uh, See, but that's like the one spot, like most of Seattle, if you go around, doesn't care. Pittsburgh, (laughs) every neighborhood I was in, it was the same shit. It was bizarre. Interesting. You know? Good for them. Yeah, Go Steelers, hearts. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's weird. I find myself constantly going on tangents, and it's not because I dislike this movie. And I yeah. think there are interesting things that happen in this movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also just such a fucking bummer that it doesn't seem like it would be fun to talk about. Like, well, yeah, <laughs> his daughter doesn't want to see him. Oh, <laughs> or, dude. Well, it's it's literally like, how can we punish Jake Gyllenhaal in every single way and also just show his descent from, you know, being the, you know, best fighter of all time and stuff. And and look at his little tattoo of a, of a, a bird that kind of looked like a weed leaf the entire movie. I kept getting thrown off by that of like, geez, a weed yep. leaf? Okay. Um, I, I feel like... Uh, the um, relationship that he has with his daughter, and I, yeah, forgive me, I can't remember her, the actor's name. Um, she uh, looks she's super incredible. familiar. She's, Una she's amazing. I, mean, I don't know if I've... Una. Oh, yeah. like, like, the first time that you meet her is this really sweet, like, encounter with her and her dad, and, like, randomly she's counting the abrasions on his face, like, in mm-hmm. this way that's supposed to be cute, but you're like, God uh and then and then like there's some aggressive like uh you know i need to tell you something right fucking now you love me yeah i love you and it's like, yeah. like the cutest like shit that the you know but um it's like building those uh that foundation early and and knowing what the relationship is like makes the like descent even more painful because you know she's going to uh, you know, she's taken away by DHS after he drives the car into his car into a tree when he's all, you know, drunk. And it's the perfect combo. He has a loaded gun, drives into a tree, drunk, and then stumbles to his house for his daughter to like call 911 for him. Like he's trying to kill himself, but yeah. uh, they were like, not only were you drunk behind the wheel, but you had a loaded weapon around a minor yeah that's uh, <laughs> uh that's a your kids are going away combo for sure yeah and i mean just watching you know that rock bottom and then i i even feel like it it gets even worse because the the first couple of times when he attempts to see his daughter he's just such a mess that she's like scared of him and is just pissed because you know he forgets that she's suffering the loss of her mother you know, as a young child. And, well, and, and 
between McAdams' death and her getting taken away, there's mm-hmm. like 30 minutes where Gyllenhaal is basically auditioning for Batman. He's just <laughs> brooding and sad and not giving a shit about anything. Mm-hmm. Like, he completely forgets about his kid and he's making all these horrible decisions and like she's there in the background so not only is she having to deal with her own grief but she's having to deal with a dad who can't process it and Mm. like i don't blame her for being super pissed yeah uh that's gotta be incredibly traumatic for a she's supposed to be like 11 and like again I I looked. She turned 18 this year. And this actress is probably the standout in the film. Like, mm-hmm. most of the time, especially at this age, child actors are too precocious or, you know, too stilted or Wesley Crusher. Uh, <laughs> but she fucking kills it. And it is incredible. She must have one hell of, like, a stage family, like, destroying her life yeah it's like she she certainly uh, even speaks for the audience because she's the one who kind of get a grip dad like Mm -hmm. this is you know crazy like i had this sneaking suspicion that the caseworker uh was really the ghost of his wife uh you know reincarnate (laughs) this was gonna take on a like a weird like ghost thing and she's gonna wink at the camera and casper it and um but it's yeah i agree i think her performance in like the development between them as he's simultaneously taking anger management courses and checking in with the courts every 30 days. And also, mm-hmm. um, you know, the second half of the movie going to Forrest Whitaker, which by the way, Forrest Whitaker, coolest actor Hollywood name ever that no one's talking about. Like Forrest Whitaker is a movie star name and he, he's, he's phenomenal in this movie too, because he plays the like wizened boxer, who runs this gym that, uh, you know, he decides to give uh, Jake Gyllenhaal a break by offering, you know, janitorial job, which he initially Mm -hmm. refuses. And it's just like the relationship that he builds with uh, Forrest Whitaker. And then the, uh, the kid Woody, what was his name? Woody? What's his name? It wasn't Woody. That broke my heart. Okay. That broke my heart, but it also kind of bugged me. Hoppy. Hoppy, yeah. So he builds this relationship with a kid, and then in one scene, he's talking to Forrest Whitaker. He's like, you know, Hoppy, like, I'm worried about him. He's been wearing the same clothes for a couple days. Like, I guess his mom moved out. And then later, it's used as the thing, because Forrest Whitaker's like, I don't train pro fighters anymore. Uh, And then they're like, oh, Hoppy got killed by his dad. Uh, And that's somehow, like, made Forrest Whitaker want to train Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, it doesn't oh, really the pay off. Lamb. Well, speaking <laughs> yeah. of screenwriting. Yeah. It's kind of bullshit. Like, yes, you need to have the conflict. Like, Forrest Whitaker doesn't want to do it. But, like, that felt cheap and lazy, which we should say it's written by... I was joking earlier with the screenwriting thing because this is written by Chris <laughs> Better, uh of Sons of Anarchy fame. And... Mm he does write emotionally troubled dumb guys really well. <laughs> and this is like a emotionally troubled dumb guy showcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, before we go any further, I do also want to say this project was conceived 
with Eminem starring. Like that's mind blowing for Eminem. And given the amount of acting required in this movie, <laughs> I feel like we're a lot better off with Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, oh, but but at least we get the consolation prize of a fucking awful non-consensual Eminem song that plays during the montage and shit. I just like was this... that original to this movie? I it felt like it was. No, no, that was off his fourth LP that came out in. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Because um, there's yeah, like shit about boxing in it, so I was like, well, of course, it's the Machado. Like, I'm gonna make this rap song, okay? But I'm gonna mention my ex-wife who I want to murder, but I'm mm. also gonna talk about you know doing push-ups for boxing and getting my daughter back. I I do love how it is like kind of a 2001 Eminem movie, like mm-hmm. the wife he hates in real life dies uh and, <laughs> and he's still got to figure out a way to get his daughter back like yeah basically eminem's output in the early 2000s is like yeah wish she was dead and i missed my daughter um, but then if i killed her i'd miss that bitch yeah like that's all his music is is like i really want to kill this person and control her as much as i love her god i love her some but god if she just speaks out of turn that's and and some f f words like the bad f word stuff. I don't know. It's just Eminem would have distracted me way too much uh, from this this movie, and I'm just kind of happy that he's not attached to it at all. Other than that song, it was growth. But yeah, and so there's really what like three fights in this movie. There's the one at the beginning, uh, and then one where Gyllenhaal gets kicked out of. He gets a suspension from fighting for a year. Uh, for headbutting the referee, right? Yeah. Uh, and before that, he's not really putting up a fight. Like, yeah, he's in the ring to make money, but he... He's punishing he, himself. He's just letting them kind of punch him, too. That's yeah. how I felt about it. He's not even putting his hands up in, like, any kind of defense. And the final fight is the climax of the movie. And I gotta say... Uh, I feel like Southpaw was kind of forgotten about in a year that also had Creed, which mm-hmm. I think is also an interesting boxing movie. One of my hotter takes is that Southpaw is better than Creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people completely disagree with that, but I think Creed has a lot of style, like that fight where it's all one shot for the whole like five minute fight oh yeah Uh, that was really cool but everything else about creed is just another fucking rocky movie yeah like it's very trite and kind of predictable whereas this i legitimately couldn't remember if he won or lost at the end because you know it felt more like the original rocky where it's just like such a fucking bummer the whole movie yeah totally. <laughs> and then like rocky loses well exactly like i didn't know if they were gonna do that or like a, another famous is like bad news bears where it's like okay they don't win at the end of the movie and that's the kind of sort of lesson and stuff but like this i was like shit it could go either way like has he earned the you know winning the whole thing and now he's you know mm-hmm. welcome back into the fold and all that stuff or is he just gonna straight up lose and then show his daughter that he has the dignity to take that and go, Hey, you know what? We just have a bunch of money. So, you know, let's go, let's go 
do something. <laughs> yeah. Like we're back together because now I can afford to have you, I guess. That's that's a fucked up thing about our, our system where yeah. like if your kids are taken away and you're poor, you can't have them back. Um, yeah. I don't know how true to life that is, but that sounds like America. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that, that was some of the most excruciating stuff was like a lot of the small moments with his daughter. Like there's a part where um, it's like uh, his wife's been dead, like super recent, super fresh. And he like turns off the light in her room. And then she's like, can you keep it on? Like mom would keep it on. And like, they're not in the same room, but they're both emo- like super emotional. And like Jake Gyllenhaal just kind of apologizing and trying to, come to terms with like the physicality of like mom's never gonna keep that light on you know like it's Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like cerebral um moments of grief that are so real and they're really intimate and like personal that Fuqua shoots in a way that also addresses masculinity and in the ability to um you know mask a lot of your emotions and anger um, in this outlet without kind of dealing with it. Cause like they even make a mention, I think, um, uh, Forrest Whitaker is, is saying like, you know, you have to be kind of like the matador and the bull and stuff. And it's like, mm-hmm. he's the bull for the first half of the movie because he's furious. He loses control and just goes after whatever. And he's defenseless because he's only focusing on offense, like, you know, boxing wise. And yeah. so it's the, the idea that at the end he needs to be calculating. Like when Miguel is, um, you know, talking shit about his wife and, and all that stuff. Um, he's expecting him to lose control completely, flip out like a grenade and then have him exploit that. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool to just kind of see him win on his own terms and to do something that would have made his wife, you know, presumably, you know, proud. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like she was there because he was looking for her, you know, in every fight since she died, looking for Mo. And like that was kind of a transcendent, amazing part was like he by doing the right thing and, and you know, doing his rehab by actually doing the work, like, you know, training kids, uh, you know, getting back in shape, you know, taking care of his body mm-hmm. it was a, a good ride versus just like you said, like some of the other kind of boxing movies where like Creed is, is really great, but relies on the fact that it's a chapter in the Rocky series instead of it being its own thing, which could have been a little more engaging if it was his own, its own thing. Yeah. Um, And I feel like a few recent movies have made the stakes more heightened. Like, I think I remember in the fighter, there's a lot of that, like too, where his personal life is a big part of it. And, uh, did you ever see warrior? No, that's the Tom Hardy one. The... Yeah, I think it's Tom Hardy. Um, I saw it years and years ago. And that's another one where I feel like it's like darker and grittier about like he's got to address some things. But just the stakes are much more than a boxing match in this. Like, obviously, he probably gets his daughter back either way just for agreeing to the fight. But mm-hmm the movie sets it up like if he wins he gets his daughter back like yeah. it's kind of manipulative that way yeah it, it's all manipulative like it's no different than you know 50 cent or uh, curtis jackson is in the movie as his like agent who is just a conniving asshole like wants him to sign an hbo deal and rachel mcadams is you know are you 
you know, doing this out of because we're friends or are you doing this to because my husband's a commodity and mm-hmm. ultimately manipulates, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal into signing a contract like, oh, your wife would want this, you know, just like such a shitty person. And that whole setup is kind of gross. Like all of the world of boxing is kind of gross, you know, and it kind of uh, I love the like the small moments of, you know, um, you know, after he loses, he's in the uh, he's in the shower with his socks on, which was like this little joke with his wife earlier in the movie or whatever. And he's alone. Mm-hmm. He's not surrounded by any fans. None of his friends are there, just like his wife predicted. And it's just like seeing this person just fall even further from grace and uh, in a way that was more real as opposed to like the Hollywoody kind of stupid, you know, uh, castrated version. Yeah. Um, there was one, the charity fight. Cause so his first kind of foray back into the public spotlight is this charity fight, uh, which he agrees to do for like the veterans of America, or, <coughs> um, wounded veterans. And it takes place in a church question mark. Did you notice that? Is that sacrilegious? I mean, I didn't think it was necessarily a church. I thought it was like a Elks Lodge or something. Uh, the same thing, right? Don't they worship like... I think Elks Lodges... Uh, my understanding is basically all they are is a way to get around like liquor law things. Hmm. Uh, like they're not as big of a deal in places where there's a bunch of bars. But in like small towns, because uh, my friend's boyfriend is a member of like the eagles or the elks or one of those shit Hmm. uh basically what it is is you pay a membership fee and then it's like costco for a bar (laughs) uh you pay the membership fee and then you go in and the drinks are super cheap and like it's private so only other people that pay the fee can go there so you just are getting wasted with your like buddies in town but then like you can go to any across the country and like you get special deals if you go to ones in other towns and like it sounds fucking kind of rad. Like that's super weird. If when, I ever become like s- a middle aged alcoholic, I'm going to become an Elks member. Well, it's like when did they, you know, brand you in your inner thigh and swear your yourself to you know, well, the, the great elk? I don't think you have to be like invited or anything. I think you can just go be like, hey, I uh, want to join. Uh Although, like most American things, I'm sure it started as a way to keep, like, you know, minorities out. But at this sure. point, I think they're pretty, pretty cool with it. So hopefully. they can overserve them because they can't, like, around liquor law. So, like, who cares if they're wasted and overserved? I don't think it's that so much as, like, I don't know if they need the same kind of liquor license because it's a private establishment. Like it's not mm. the same as a bar or restaurant. It falls in a different legal category or something. I don't know. Do you Mr. think that's the, do you think that's the same information? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if it's the same thing in like Utah where it's really strict about like their liquor laws and stuff and how, like, I think if you order a cocktail at a bar, they, for one, you have to have food in order to order like, a you know, alcohol at a bar or at least for the couple places i went to but the other was like they also have like a partition where they make your drink so that you can't see it because apparently it's sinful or something to see them make it even though i think it's date rapey but uh i wonder if the dates or the elks lodge is basically them just 
fucking making people's drinks all over the you know all over the place without that partition window see i picture more like the the place in justified if you remember that where it's i haven't like, seen justified dude all right uh justify well basically it's like three or four old timers hanging out getting drunk in the middle of the day uh and there's like no smoking ordinances of course so you can smoke in there and play pool and shit Mm -hmm. uh yeah i don't know um if you are an elk or an eagle or whatever the fuck they are uh and you animals host boxing matches or know the details on how drunk you guys get hit us up because we're curious yeah totally send us your tape yeah uh or you know once this is all over um come uh get us a, a hookup and we'll get drunk in an elk lounge let's do it give me a reason give me a reason to get drunk in an elk in an elk lounge dude lodge 18 months ago i would have said there's no fucking way i'm getting drunk in an elk lodge yeah now i'd totally fucking do that shit you know <laughs> <laughs> anything to get out of my apartment <laughs> the remake of Deer Hunter is basically them just like sh- being around the same table around COVID. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, go, well, go, going back to uh, to Hoppy, like my joke throughout this movie um, w- was basically like, hey, if anything happens to fucking Hoppy, I'm turning this goddamn movie off because that kid was like the sweetest little dude. And uh, I feel like it was manipulative, too, because it was kind of like. Forrest Whitaker and Jake Gyllenhaal had this conversation that was like, okay, something's going on with Hoppy. Okay, I'll look into it. I mean, let's do something about it or whatever. And then it was like, cool. So you guys both failed this kid because <laughs> yeah, like, if you're telling me that, like, I was assuming that, okay, by the end of that meeting, they were like, okay, I'm going over to his dad's house right now or, or whatever. I'm figuring shit out. And it's just like, Oh, nope. We're going to just, We'll handle that at a different time. It's not, you know, the fact that this kid, you know, smells like he's been wearing the same clothes for three days and that I mean, he may have an abusive person at home. Like, in their defense, Jake Gyllenhaal is an entire fuck up who can <laughs> barely talk. He's had so much CTE. Uh, and Forrest Whitaker, his main character trait is he likes going to the bar. Like, yeah. I don't feel like these guys necessarily <laughs> know what to do. And, uh, I, I feel like they did their best, you know, but <laughs> they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, how, how do you how do you think this fits in Fuqua's, you know, work so far that we've explored? Like, do you think this sets new, you know, uh you know, precedence for his work moving forward? Like, do you think this is a standout? What What do you, what do you think? I don't necessarily think it sets a precedent. Uh, I think it's interesting because as we've gone through this, I've sort of come closer to shaping a thesis of what his overall vision is. And being that it, cues towards melodrama it's interesting to see him actually doing a melodrama um the next two movies are not that at all and i think creatively they're less interesting i think the 
final his two most recent movies are his least ambitious in a weird way Hmm. and i think that's kind of disappointing but i also think even he gets stymied by modern hollywood like by this point i i always call him like a 80s auteur even though he didn't do things in the 80s but every film of his feels like a emotional 80s movie like it feels like something you would see at a various studio in the 80s starring stallone or jcvd or any Mm -hmm. of these guys uh but the next two movies feel a lot more mercenary and more of the 2010s uh so i think this is not his best movie but it's his most recent really good movie mm-hmm. like do you, do you think this was his like attempt at like an oscar like do you think it has the you know allure I don't, of that? i don't think it necessarily is or do you think he gives a shit because like he seems really cocky he does. <laughs> like he seems honestly like we've used the term like outsider before like I think he was just focusing on doing something more complicated. Like this is really the story of Jake Gyllenhaal's fall and rise. And I know that that's like mm-hmm. not the most original thing, but there's enough really amazing moments in the movie that set it apart, but it doesn't feel like the Meryl Streep, like I'm doing this movie to hopefully garner some kind of acclaim. It just feels like they're doing their own thing off to the side and turning out this special you know, these special ingredients. Um, I think you're also right about like the eighties influence. Like there were a lot of parts of this movie that reminded me of raging bowl. Um, not even just with the, you know, the opening sequence reminded me a lot of uh, raging bowl, like just in terms of camera work and mm-hmm. uh, transition, you know, like, um, uh, just the actual like composition of the images with the mirror and him talking to his wife in the bedroom. Um, there's a lot of just, interesting uh, moments of that degree, including like the brutality of the fights. Like they really do look like they're hitting the shit out of each other and everything looks realistic to, to the, it's not hyper violent. It's like, it makes you feel like you are like totally there in person and that they're really punching the shit out of each other. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a pretty cool um, thing to do is kind of make Jake Gyllenhaal, fade into this character that you're not seeing Donnie Darko, you know, you're not seeing Jake Gyllenhaal. Like he kind of, you know, really melted in with this uh, in a way that was really interesting because it's like, you don't really know how many boxing movies you're going to do in your career. Like what's one that would set yourself apart from the others and what, why why would you be interested in that? And it's, his just cerebral, you know, performance is just amazing. Yeah. I, uh, I don't, think i liked it quite as much as you um, <laughs> but i did think overall it was an interesting and successful movie uh, one of the things i wished he had done more of was the cinematography in the boxing ring itself yeah um he goes for more of like a realist take where he's mm-hmm. cutting between like quote-unquote tv cameras and you know other <laughs> angles either in the ring or just outside it uh where i mean like raging bull has so much flair in how they shoot those fights uh Mm -hmm. and that was the one area i wish there'd been more but on the other hand the 
cinematography, or not the cinematography, the choreography in this is so incredible. Like you said, it looks like actual fights. Yeah. And it, I feel like the realism of you making it look closer to actual broadcast makes that brutality stand out mm-hmm. in a way it might not have otherwise. Yeah, that's how I feel about it too. All right. Well, do you have anything else to say about Southpaw? Yeah. Well, okay. The last thing. All right. Did, did they did they mention his Southpaw at all until the last five minutes of the movie, where it was like, "Hey, this guy who had the Southpaw." Well, no, know. because that's the thing. He doesn't normally fight Southpaw. It's okay. About him learning to fight in a new way, and like he wins the fight because he switches his style and fights Southpaw. Uh, and the other guy's not expecting it. So okay. it's a metaphor. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank God. I, I was going to have a restless night if we didn't get to the bottom of that. Yeah. <laughs> but fuck yeah. I, I uh, yeah, this was a, an interesting one. What's what's next for us? Where do we go from here? Is this Magnificent Seven after this? I think... If the calendar is right, and if not, Evan can cut this out. I think next week we will be doing a very special episode about our favorite films of the year. And oh. then we'll do Magnificent Seven. Hey now. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Please rate, review, subscribe if you like what you're hearing. And if you don't, if you don't go fuck yourself. <laughs> Hey everyone, producer Evan here, just to make a quick correction at the end of the episode today, we um, mentioned that we would be doing a year-end special directly after this episode before hopping into Magnificent Seven. I am here to tell you that we have changed our minds, woo, and we're actually going to do Magnificent Seven first, that will be coming out next week, uh, the week after Christmas, Merry Christmas, um, and then the following Monday after that we're going to release our year-end special where we talk about what we've discovered of the year, the fun things that we've been watching or listening to, recommendations we'd like to make, things we'd like to delve into, just kind of a, a way for us to, you know, recap this crazy year and talk about all the good things that might have happened out of such a shitty year. So, um... Catch us December 28th for the Magnificent Seven episode, and then January 4th for our year-end special. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay, bye!